Please pray with me. Come down, O love divine. Let your fire and your light illumine our hearts, that your way may be known upon earth, and your saving health among all the nations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Eastertide, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But we don't only celebrate his resurrection from the dead. His body, planted in the earth like a seed, bursts forth from the grave and a new day dawns, a new reality begins. The risen Lord Jesus, scripture tells us, is the first fruits of a new creation. St. John gives us a glimpse of that new creation in our second reading from the end of Revelation. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a glorious vision of our future hope. But it isn't just a future thing either, because Jesus Christ already has risen from the dead in the midst of history. And so in our first reading from the book of Acts, We see that new creation bursting forth in a crippled man's body, this man who has never walked in his life, who's never been able to stand up, hears the apostolic message and greets it with faith, and like Jesus, this man is raised up by the power of God. It's a sign that in Jesus, our own created human nature is being made new. And this is good news. The crowd reacts with excitement because everyone wants healing. You've never met anyone who at some level or other didn't want creation to be made new. But what happens next, I think, is telling, because the crowds are filled with awe and joy, and immediately they go fetch bulls and garlands and bring them to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. The gods have come down in the likeness of men, they say. We're pretty sure these guys are Zeus and Hermes. Well, and scripture says they're speaking the local language, Lyconian, so it appears that Paul and Barnabas don't quite realize what's going on until the priest of Zeus is headed toward the altar. And then they rip their clothes, typical Jewish reaction to blasphemy, and they rush into the crowd shouting, stop, what are you doing? Stop it. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In this urgent partial sermon, we have a remarkable condensation of a theology of the created order. Notice, first, creation is good. God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. God does good work. Second, God is revealed through the good things he's made. The fruitfulness of creation is his provision. It's a sign of his providence. The natural world bears witness to its creator. Paul and Barnabas say. 
But thirdly, it's dangerously easy for us to respond to God's good creation, not just in the wrong way, but in a blasphemously wrong way. The good news here is a call to repentance, to turn from these vain things. You see, when we respond to creation wrongly, in effect, we're emptying it of its sacred meaning and purpose. We're turning it into an idol. It becomes a vain thing. God didn't make it a vain thing, but we do, by trying to turn it into an object of worship. And it's not just, unfortunately, that we go wrong in our interaction with creation. It's actually worse than that. There's a very real danger of something going wrong even in our response to new creation. In this passage, God's very active divine healing begins to be twisted into a cause for idolatry and false worship. I think most of us know that there are things about ourselves that are disordered, that are out of whack. We know that there are aspects of our inner life and choices that demand repentance. We know there are things broken in us that need to be healed. But what we see in this passage from Acts, I want to suggest, is that it isn't just the lowest or most shameful parts of us that need to be made new. What's highest and most admirable about us, our spiritual perceptions, the way we respond to, with joy to God's mighty deeds, our impulse toward worship, those things need to be healed as well. It's as if we hear the message, they hear the message, but somehow it gets garbled in transmission. We're speaking a different language. Like that man from Lister with whom the story begins, we find ourselves spiritually crippled. Our own creatureliness needs to be healed and refashioned to make us capable of receiving and responding to God's work of resurrection and restoration with right worship in spirit and in truth. And it's important to get this right because sometimes, pretty often, there's a temptation for us as Christians to see other created things as the problem. I'm, I'm led astray by their attractiveness, their beauty, their, their brokenness is afflicting me. And, and certainly, our response to these good things is, much of the time, disordered. We ask them to be more than they are. We want something from them that they can't provide. But just because the world is broken, that doesn't mean it's full of bad things. God does good work. And just because our own perception is distorted, that doesn't mean we're not hearing a message. When you encounter the beauty of the natural world and you have a sense of God's presence in it, or when you encounter beauty in something that human beings have done or made, and you read something, you have a conversation, and it feels like the lights have suddenly come on, things make more sense than they did before. Or you experience intimacy with another human being, whether that's romance or friendship or the relationship of a parent and child. When you receive a taste of true deep community, you have that moment when you feel like you're seen and known and accepted. Or if you have that experience before something incredible of being taken out of yourself into a larger reality, whatever it is that has happened in your life that feels like a moment of healing, or at least a glimpse of healing, we don't have to say, you just got that wrong there really might be something good and healing there. 
a hint of divine presence, an echo of new creation. And we can name that. We can name that with gratitude. And yet, there's always a subtle danger of overinterpretation or too hasty interpretation. I have an experience and I think, oh, that's what wholeness looks like. I get it now. I say to myself, ah, this is what can fulfill and complete me, finally. Like the people of Lystra, I think I've figured out what's going on and I start offering sacrifices, which might in fact be an appropriate response, except I'm offering them on the wrong altar. Just because I have an experience a real experience, a legitimate experience, it doesn't automatically follow that I know entirely what it means. Just because I encounter the beauty of creation and have a profound sense of holy awe in response, that doesn't automatically make me a spiritually discerning person. Sorry. Paul and Barnabas have to tell the crowds, we are men of like nature with yourselves. It turns out much of the time we don't know how to recognize and interpret our own humanity to ourselves. And, and we see this, right? We experience this in all sorts of ways. We invest so much time, so much energy in the search for identity, for meaning, for connection, trying to find out who I am as an individual or to discover my role in the community or my place in the story, trying to find and lay hold of healing, forgetting that we're fractured and damaged people. We live in a fractured and damaged society. And we have a fractured and damaged history. And we aren't always in the best position to know what our own or others' healing will ultimately look like. But all of us are tempted, all of us are tempted, to rush ahead and try to make creation new right now for ourselves. We catch a glimpse, say, yes, got it burn an ox on this altar. Or we want to try to make new creation happen for someone else. The thing about the crippled man in the story is that he can't do anything to bring about his own healing. And so unlike the crowd, he takes time to really listen to and hear the apostolic message. And his faith becomes the side of divine action and restoration in a way that nobody saw coming till it happens. I think it's significant that, at least as I read this passage, the sermon we hear in Acts 14 gets interrupted. They don't get to finish. Because creation proclaims the glory of God, but creation itself is also an incomplete sermon. Paul and Barnabas tell us that the natural order bears witness to its creator, and that's true. But that witness by itself is not sufficient. It has to be completed by the apostolic witness to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to go communion with God in nature, as good as that can be. We need to participate in apostolic community. We need the church. Above all, we need the apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection. Because we need a healing beyond what we can imagine in purely natural terms, on the basis of our own experience so far. We need a healing that takes us by surprise. In our Revelation reading, 
you notice new creation looks strikingly different from the world as you know it. This passage picks up and re-echoes several times the story of creation from Genesis chapter 1. But instead of God creating light and darkness, now we're told there will be no night there. Instead of land and water, it says the sea was no more. Instead of sun and moon and stars, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine out, for the glory of God gives it light. And of course, this is a prophetic and symbolic description. There's no darkness of evil or of death. There's no uncontrollable chaos of the stormy deeps as the ocean often represents in Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. For those of you who love going to the ocean, no, I'm not sure how literally we're supposed to take this. But at the least we can say this, that new creation is not something we could have expected or extrapolated based solely on our current experience. It's not just this world, but better. Current reality with all the unpleasant bits scrubbed out. It turns out that new creation is new. It was in the name. But at the same time, what we see at the end of Revelation is the fulfillment of the world we know. Because St. John's vision doesn't just echo Genesis 1, it also echoes Genesis 2. This new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God is like the Garden of Eden, with a river welling up and flowing from the center of it, beside the river, the tree of life. This is new creation, but it's also in some mysterious way creation restored, creation as it was always meant to be. The world you know does point to this new creation. It does bear witness. But God's new work, God's restoration is not a going back to the garden as if we could just turn back the clock, pretend all these bad things didn't happen. It's going forward to a garden city where the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Not wounds that haven't happened, but wounds that have been restored and made glorious. Where the river flows from beneath the divine throne. Because look, this is the most important thing about this vision of new creation. This is the source of its healing. The throne of God and of the Lamb is in the midst of it at its very heart. That's new. There isn't a temple in the city, John says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's new. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Look, John says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Whereas Jesus says in the gospel, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. When the crowd of pagans in Lystra shout, the gods have come down in the likeness of men, the problem is not that their imaginations have run away with them and they're getting carried away. The problem is their natural understanding and imagination doesn't go far enough. They stop short of the awesome truth. They can't fathom the possibility that God himself, not just these created things in some kind of representative spiritual fashion, but the God who made all things, heaven and earth and all that is in them, might come down. Not just 
in the likeness of men, but as a true human being to fulfill and perfect and restore his own image and likeness in us, to dwell with us, to be with us as our God. This and nothing less, dear brothers and sisters, is our fulfillment and healing as human beings, to become, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature through the union of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. We're never going to find our own true identity or meaning or purpose within ourselves in merely human terms. Thank God. We're never going to find true healing and created things. That isn't what they're for. They're meant to point beyond themselves. The consummation and the fulfillment and the healing of creation is this, to be a revelation of God, to become his temple, to be filled with divine presence, which is to say to bear witness. And it's only when we understand that that we can begin to love created things rightly. Not as ends in themselves, but as witnesses and gifts that point beyond themselves to the God who made them. It's only when we understand our true healing and fulfillment through supernatural revelation and apostolic witness that we can begin to love our own and one another's humanity rightly as a revelation of divine love and an occasion and instrument for loving God in return. When we stop with the creature, that's idolatry. But we love creatures, including our own creatureliness, by seeking God in and through them. That's where healing and new creation begins. And that, seeking God both in and beyond the created order, through that kind of love, that's how we also start to become participants in God's healing work. Look at St. Paul. Seeing a man crippled from birth who's never been able to walk, whom the world perceives as damaged, of little value, what can he contribute? Probably he sees himself that way. Have you ever felt too broken to be saved or healed? But the apostle with eyes that have been healed and recreated by the risen Christ goes to the broken places in the world looking for Jesus there. And because he's seeking to love and adore the risen Savior in this damaged and devalued creature, this crippled man, he's able to discern faith blossoming in the man's heart and speak the word of resurrection power that sets him on his feet again. I'm pretty sure this healing is a complete surprise to this man who has never walked before. Because it's a healing that, like creation itself, points beyond itself to the God who loves us and calls us to settle for nothing less than his own love, who comes to us, who makes his home with us and fills us with his presence and his spirit and gives us his supernatural peace, not as the world gives, Jesus says, do I give unto you peace that passes understanding because he alone is our true healing and restoration and new creation. The collect we prayed at the start of this morning's liturgy says this wonderfully well and I want to end again with these same words. O oh God, you have prepared for those who love you 
such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.